Nobody knows the whole story in a crisis. Everybody has a picture of their perspective, that the thing, that the, the bit that they have to take care of, and a little bit either side. And out of that, unfortunately, we tend as humans to draw instant conclusions and build narratives. Hello everyone, I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and welcome to The Optimistic Outlook. You know, in this series, what we've been doing is taking a look at infrastructure. We've been talking to experts in so many facets of our built infrastructure. And today, I'm taking a little bit of a different approach. We're talking about the leadership involved in infrastructure, and particularly the leadership involved in a moment of crisis. And I had the opportunity to participate in the Resilient Leadership Project. You recall our conversation with Seth Schultz earlier in the series. Now I get to turn the tables and interview the interviewer, Peter Willis. Peter Willis is a leader. He's been a leader in government and academia, and now he's working with us to help us understand the elements of leadership and build a more resilient approach, especially in times of crisis. I know you're gonna enjoy hearing his thoughts about how things unfolded and what we've learned from these moments. Peter Willis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Barbara. It's lovely to be here. In this podcast, we've been focusing on how moments of crisis can actually spark innovation. And I know you were engaged in a crisis that occurred in Cape Town. Tell us about it and tell us what you learned about problem solving and innovation. Yes, well, this was, um, this was a very extraordinary drought uh, that lasted four years, 2015 through 2018. And we got to the point at the very beginning of 2018, which is peak summer for us, January, sort of December, January, where the city council told us, um, and us means 4 million people, that uh, if we couldn't reduce our consumption still further, a lot further than it already was, we, and if the rains didn't come, we would be having to stand, they would switch off the taps and we would have to stand and queue for 25 liters of water per person each day, which was a, would have been a complete catastrophe. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine just how chaotic and disruptive that would be. And fortunately, everybody came to the party and we reduced our consumption dramatically. And with one or two other key interventions, which I, I won't go into now, we got to the point in uh, late March, early April 2018, where it was clear that we, had, we were out of the danger zone, at least for the rest of that year. And actually, we got quite good rains during that next winter so you'd gotten into a winter with rain, and now we're facing a future with a bit more time for planning. What did you do? What actions did you take? And what did you learn about leadership through this? I, I realized that there was no institutional mechanism to, uh, to help society, to help my city and its leadership, both private sector and public sector, to learn out of their experience because people would just get on and do the next thing that was in their inbox to do, um, be relieved that the crisis was over. 
And I thought this is a real gap because there are so many lessons that we could take with us into the future and share with the rest of the world, other big cities and so on. So what I did was I teamed up with a, a documentary filmmaking friend of mine, Victor van Asferen, and together we interviewed in depth on camera 39 people who had been closely involved in the response to the, the crisis. Um, and from that material, we have subsequently distilled out about 55 short films on different themes that pull out the, the learnings and, some, and tease out some of the arguments that underlay how people responded. And you ask me what I learned, gosh, I, the, the thing that comes to mind, Barbara, is that nobody knows the whole story in a crisis. Even, a, even I would argue, even a small crisis within an organization, never mind a, a citywide or global crisis. But by definition, a crisis is a disruption of normal. And, and uh, everybody has a picture of their perspective, that the thing, that the, the bit that they have to take care of, and a little bit either side. And out of that, unfortunately, we tend as humans to draw instant conclusions and build narratives and so on. What we learned by interviewing uh, these 39 people, some, in some cases over many, many hours, was that they, even the people who were in charge of the city's response, the, the municipality's response, they didn't know the whole story. They thought they knew the whole story, but they very clearly didn't. So um, that was one learning, and, and that has real implications, I think, for leaders, because it, it, it suggests that humility about what the totality of what it is that's happening under my watch is called for. But the other thing that I learned um, was everybody was incredibly willing to share their reflections uh, and their perception of what happened, why it happened, what went well, what didn't, and so on. And I, I took that to mean that a crisis like that, and, and the pandemic has been something similar, uh, really uh, brings out a sense of purpose and meaning for people, particularly people who make a habit of being responsible in their societies and their organizations and so on. In other words, what, what we loosely call leaders, that they, um, they know that these moments are very precious because they move on to a fifth or sixth gear. And uh, in that space, they do things, they think things, they relate to people in a way that is quite fleeting, can make a critical difference. And so a chance for them to go back and think about how they did that, they all said this was really valuable um, just to do it, never mind watching the movie later, as it were. They just that process of being asked to reflect. The idea that people have a perspective and are willing to share it. That's interesting. In the water crisis, you did your work after the fact. But, but yeah. as the coronavirus swept the globe, you actually had the idea of, of doing those interviews in the moment. Tell us about that inspiration and how you came to join uh, the Resilient Leadership Project. Well, I, I wish I could remember the exact moment uh, it happened, but I'd just come back from uh, Zimbabwe, Victoria Falls, where I'd been running a, a workshop for the African Insurance 
industry's leadership. And while we were there, while we were there for four days, the pandemic suddenly really burst out of China, was starting to take hold in Europe, and we all realized we'd have to go home and life would be different. And when I got home, uh, I thought, um, first of all, about the city of Cape Town, my city where we've been doing this enormous project. And I thought, well, let's get started now. And I spoke to my contacts, um, senior people in the city administration, and they said, what a good idea. Yes, uh, let's do that. And then they went silent for a few days. And I realized afterwards, this is because they, they were suddenly inundated with the need to change, to, to work remotely and so on. So they just lost sight of my proposal. And during those few days, I was thinking, well, can I please get started? And uh, I contacted my friends at the Resilience Shift who'd been funding a large part of the drought project. And they said, got it, but we're not gonna do it just with Cape Town. We wanna do this globally. And that's how I got introduced to you and 11 other uh, leaders, one of whom was the chief resilience officer in Cape Town, but the rest I'd never met. We've actually documented quite a bit. I, I mean, the conversations themselves, uh, a weekly podcast that you and Seth Schultz did. I had the privilege of interviewing Seth earlier in this podcast series. I'd love to hear from you. What new things did you learn in the process of, of working through this project? Wow. Well, um, for me, probably the far and away, the biggest learning was the extraordinary power of extended conversation between people whose shared ambition is to um, solve large problems for large groups of people, even to the extent of humanity, you know. And I think everybody who, who stood forward like you did um, to do this project did it. And I, I'm interested to know from you, actually, because it seemed to me that people were saying, yes, I want to contribute. That was a sort of a, a key gesture from the participants. It wasn't, oh, this will be helpful to me. Yes, please. Thank you. I'll take that. It was, yes, I want to contribute to this learning and research project because goodness, we all need to know, all of us leaders around the world need to know how to cope with big crises like this is going to be. Um, so, uh, yeah, and and so the, the, the intention on, on both sides was a very high level intention. I was, this was different from coaching. It, it might've looked from the outside like coaching because like you say, we would have a conversation for half an hour every week. That's a sort of coachy kind of situation, but actually it wasn't um, because I was there to, to be alongside you as a leader and to listen to you and you were using me as a sounding board uh, and not as a dumb sounding board either because we, you, you know, we had a, we to and fro and, and, and so on. And by the end of it, my sense was, and we, as you remember, we had a, a gathering of uh, pretty much all the 12 participants. Um, and there was a really strong feeling that the, the power of this process of regular reflect, reflecting with a sort of so-called stranger, I mean, I, I ceased to be a stranger, obviously, um, had really helped people in leadership positions to, to think differently and to reflect and to open up a kind of a larger landscape of mind 
when everything around them at various points was encouraging them to close down. In other words, there was a lot of um, incentive to panic um, at various times. But we, we kept cranking open the landscape and saying, yes, but why? And, and what really is going on and so on? So I think you've tapped into something powerful, Peter. Because yes, and, and for listeners who uh, are, are interested in learning more, there's a very rich website and our program notes will take you there. So you can go and have a deeper look yourself, whether you prefer to read or listen, there are many, many ways you can consume this information. But, but Peter, it's so fascinating to have the shoe on the other foot because you're the one being interviewed now. And, and what you've opened up is this idea that maybe one of the most important aspects of leadership today is listening. I mean, you said it as you were talking about the Cape Town crisis, not any one person understood the whole view. Same thing with coronavirus. And when have we faced a healthcare crisis that turned into an economic crisis? And as you know, here in the U.S. very deeply, a, a societal crisis dealing with racial justice. Uh, I, I yeah. mean, just we, there, there haven't been many moments like this in human history. And yet you, um, you tapped into this very powerful tool of listening. What is it about listening that is so crucial to leadership right now? Well, look, I think that two thoughts come to mind. The the first one is, um, goes beyond leadership to um, who we've become as modern humans in, particularly in the more um, advanced sort of urbanized economies and so on, which is, um, I I think we have become a, a data swapping um, you use the term consuming information uh, that are and and we're trading um, text and images and and ideas, but sort of packaged ideas uh, all the time. And uh, listening is a slow process and one that we humans um, have been sort of genetically coding ourselves for for, 200,000 years, I mean, well, you may go way back to the to the apes, call it a couple of million of year, years, um, that we've, we weren't hurried. There was very rarely a sense of hurry. And, and that's in a way what we were able to do in those, I mean, half an hour sounds very short, but in, but to just listen to one another for half an hour, when you're a busy executive, you will know that's uncommon. And I think from the leadership perspective, the sort of the other thing I'd say is that um, my my hunch is that most leadership um, guidance and learning and uh, theory has tended to major on uh, communication and that the the leader has to analyze, develop ideas, um, have principles and all those good things. And then, Make sure that you're communicating your message outward. And that's a sort of a one-way radiating gesture. And what I discovered with the Cape Town drought, as I've already said, is, and it was absolutely the case with the pandemic, where nobody, nobody knew how it was going to end. And that's still the case. Uh, 
we could really do with some humility uh, right at the top of organizations to say, I don't know, we don't know, but in our not knowingness, what can we know that will serve us? And to do that, you have to listen more than talk. One of the very interesting things about the way you structured this project is that there were 12 of us yeah. in cities, chief resilience officers pri primarily, and then six people in businesses, very different businesses. And what I discovered during the project was that week by week, as you published our results, I could see that not everyone in this group shared my optimistic outlook. Some were downright pessimistic, you know, worried about the better at identifying the, the next risks and, and sort of getting into a defensive posture to be ready for those than I was. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, what I think is that there's quite a bit to be learned from a peer group at a time like this. I'm not sure that I would have learned more from more participants, but there's something about a group of about a dozen that actually did tap into enough diversity of thinking to make this an enriching experience. What are your thoughts about how we form up teams to support one another in times of crisis? Yeah, well, I th I'm happy to say that just in, you know, in my working life, this idea of diversity actually being maybe a good thing uh, has mushroomed into a dominant narrative. And it's based on, a, um, I think, a very fundamental truth, which is that um, life and nature has, has always thrived on complexity. And we are an example of that. Um, but we've, we've somehow learned to forget it and imagine that there's only one kind of valid human being, and that's the one who looks like me or thinks like me. And uh, fortunately now, there's a really emerging narrative which says that um, more and different is better. So I want to come back to this question of how do you build a team uh, that will be really good in, in crisis? And, and as you and I know, Barbara, the well, well, no, we don't know, but we assume that there are going to be many more crises that we and our organizations have to face. So why not let's become really good at it? And um, my current thinking is that if you were to ask me to help you build the best team for coping with the next crisis and the one after and the one after, I think my the, the most powerful tool that we would have would be to have a series of conversations with individual team leaders and then possibly small groups of those team leaders to invite them to, to think out loud about and to reflect on their own experience of dealing with difficulty when things have gone suddenly and, and horribly wrong, whether professionally, um, whether societally or in their families, you know, there. You know, human. Every human life is littered with experience, direct or indirect. But those, uh, because what you want to nurture, I think, it, particularly in leaders, but it's, it goes right through your organisation, is this sense that it is absolutely appropriate to feel fear when something goes suddenly wrong and and there is real danger. 
But then you want to feel that enough confidence in yourself and the people around you that you can actually um, think and feel your way past the fear into the excitement of having your collective back to the wall. So what are we going to do now? What absolutely needs to be done by me, you, and, our, and the people around us to help us, first of all, survive, then start to rebuild, then to thrive, transform, and those kinds of things. And uh, so, and I don't think you get to that material, that internal material, without asking and really listening, giving people a space to recall how they felt and responded when they met a shock of danger uh, or sudden massive loss of the ordinary. That is amazingly well said. And I, I cherish these conversations that we're having because, because these are things that are not frequently talked about in business, right? In business, we're often focused on the hard-nosed data, et cetera. But, but in fact, it's these relationships between people that really shapes what gets done. And you've, you've given us a bit of, a, of a, a thought about how we can how we can build more resilient teams. And resilience, as you've been teaching us, is about so much more than just responding. It's about reimagining, reinventing, and getting purpose-driven and being imaginative about the future. Now, one of the things we've been asking ourselves here in the U.S. is, oh, well, do we need crises to prompt, to prompt this real creativity? And in fact, what I'm hoping as, um, as we move forward, I'm hoping we don't need it. As you say, we don't know what we'll be up against in the future, but we do know we have opportunities. And one reason I've devoted so many conversations in the Optimistic Outlook to infrastructure is because this is one of our opportunities. We have the chance to uh, work together across government and business in order to build resilience into our societies through infrastructure. So having worked with us, both cities and businesses, over these last nine months, I'm curious, what advice would you have for us as, as we move forward? And what opportunities do you see for governments and businesses to be working together and uplifting infrastructure? Massive ones um, is the short answer. Uh, and I, I suppose um, the thing that would interest me most out of that sort of a big ambitious menu you just spread there is um, this idea of um, learning from our crises. I mean, if you just take the pandemic, and goodness knows there have been, you know, in your professional lifetime, there have been dozens of crises that you could point to and say, these affected our ability to um, work together as a team to serve our customers and so on. How did we cope? And uh, resilience, I'm sorry, infrastructure is a, um, it's, it, it struggles. It's a bit like climate change. It's it's so phenomenally important. It's critical to our survival, but it sounds dreadfully dull. And it sounds as though it belongs to dull professionals to take care of and dull bureaucrats to, to regulate or finance and so on. And 
actually, if you get people telling the stories of this pandemic as the most recent example, the stories that come out of this pandemic, and if you if you you ask them to to tell their stories through the lens of, well, what did we discover we really depend on here? There's your answer. Like the whole health infrastructure, the whole um, communications infrastructure, for heaven's sake. I mean, you know, the, the, the one thing that really scared me during this was just, just how vulnerable we are to our communications infrastructure failing us. Uh, we could cope with everything so long as we could talk to each other and so on. So, uh, and to get business people and, and, and government people and people from civil society around uh, a table, virtual or real, to, um, to, to really dwell in that vulnerability and then start remembering the stories of how we actually coped and shored up our infrastructure when we needed to. And it, it'll, it, would, it would, I'm sure, become so obvious um, where we need to collaborate, what, what needs to be done, what needs to be transformed going forward. The danger, of course, is that it always looks um, dauntingly too much. Uh, and that's where one needs to be a little courageous and realistic and say, we. I don't know, I, I have a rather sort of um, perverse thing that I say uh, at moments like this, which is, remember, we could fail. Um, I sometimes think that we've become so, um, particularly people who want sort of the world to change and be better and so on. We become relentlessly gung-ho and positive. And I mean, uh, you know, your, this podcast is called The Optimistic Outlook and I'm solidly behind it. And I think it really helps. It's like a little sort of homeopathic injection of um, an, another aspect of reality, which is that we could fail. Well, let's get over that. We might. Now, wouldn't it be fun to succeed? Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Peter Willis, this has been just a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your gifts to all of us as you've worked with us to, to illustrate the power of listening and the brilliant future with resilient leadership. Thank you so much. Well, may I just say that uh, I, I think better when I'm well listened to, and you, you are a really good listener, Barbara. So you've been, you've been doing it. Thank you. Thank you for the personal coaching <laughs> session. <too. laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to, to see you again and to think with you again. Thank you, Peter. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.